this is a time to thrill with Amy Austin, who also writes as Sylvie Fox. I'm coming to you with an extra episode. We'll call it episode five. I was sitting around, not doing much, um, thinking about writing, literature, and I thought I'd pop in with um, some thoughts. I will say this, as I recorded, it's Friday morning in Los Angeles. It's cloudy. It's about 65 degrees. You know, when I moved here uh, 19 years ago, I guess I thought Southern California was always sunny. And it, it is actually always sunny, or rather it doesn't rain very often, but it's certainly cloudy many, many, many mornings. Um, the water, the ocean, collects uh clouds and uh, they hover over at least Los Angeles. I don't know how far east um, they hover until somewhere between 11 in the morning. Sometimes the clouds never clear depending on how thick the cloud cover, what they call the marine layer is on any given day. But um, it keeps the mornings cool. But right now my uh, eastern facing um, dining room, which is where I record this, is a little dark so i have the dining room light on um, early in the morning which doesn't uh, give you the warmest brightest feeling you know actually so i think i've mentioned this um, in previous podcasts but i'm in the middle (laughs) or coming to the end of a divorce i filed for divorce and moved out two years ago and i'm still not divorced that's neither here nor there. But I think um, one of the hardest things about divorce that people sort of don't talk about is the fact that you lose custody of your children half the time. I don't know. I thought moving out of an abusive household was a much more protective measure for my sanity, certainly, and for my child. But I guess I knew, but didn't think much about the fact that my child has to be there, you know, 50% of the time. It's really hard. But sometimes I think about how I normalized the abuse and how crazy it was. Um, I remember sitting at the kitchen counter. Um, I have a long scar on my elbow, which, by the way, took forever to heal. And when I, my son was two, three, four, he used to ask me about it all the time. I think it may be the only like visible scar I have on my body. And he was always like, Mommy, how'd you get that scar on your elbow? And I would sit there and I'd look at him and I'd go, Oh, well, your dad and I were outside one day and he got mad and he pushed me down on the pavement and it split open. And I gave him the whole story about how it really hurt. Um, it took a long time to heal. And because, you know, your elbow has to bend, um, the scar would split open all the time. It was impossible to keep a bandage on a joint. And I can't believe that I focused so much on that part and not the part that, oh, you know, I think one or two years into into my marriage, um, your father pushed me down on the pavement and wasn't sorry. Um, It was always my fault. It was always my fault. Um, I guess I knew, having worked in domestic relations, um, doing divorce and custody, four or five years, I did realize that barring grievous, grievous conduct, and I'm talking about like stick your child in the oven conduct, um, courts are reluctant to separate parents from their children, even when they're abusive, even though we know statistically that it's not good for children, that abusers don't change. Um, The courts 
certainly do not keep up with, I don't know, modern psychology, modern science. It's intellectually interesting, personally quite devastating. But um, I don't know, I was thinking about that this morning because um, I'm here alone for the weekend until my son comes back on Sunday night. And as my 10-year-old would say, that got dark. Um, So again, I'm Amy Austin. I'm the author of 22 now books under four different pen names. Um, The other, um, which um, is Sylvie Fox, the other two, that's a whole different conversation, but they're what we call pretty much dead pen names, pen names that have, I think, six or seven books that um, I no longer promote or acknowledge except to myself they are up on the mantle so it's not as if they don't exist anyway one of the things I was thinking about this week um, were epigraphs so an epigraph um, as I'm sure you know as a reader is a phrase or quotation or poem that's set at the beginning of a work and Um, according to Wikipedia, which I have a love-hate relationship with, um, it says the epigraph may serve as a preface to the work, as a summary, as a counterexample, or a link from the work to a wider literary canon, with the purpose of either inviting comparison or enlisting a conventional context. I think that, um, I think a lot more about an epigraph as leading to theme. You know, it's an interesting side note. Um, a couple of years back, I spent um, a few weeks driving through Greece on vacation um, in the spring. And the tour guide, his name was George. Um, anyway, he was lovely. Anyway, the tour guide spent a lot of time discussing how so many English words derive from the Greek. It was fascinating words like, you know, psychology because <laughs> to name one that I was just thinking about. But another word is um, epigraph. And it was interesting because in Greek, um, it means inscription. It's something we come across a lot when I was looking at a lot of Greek ruins. And um, I'll see if I can find a, a great picture to post on uh, amyaustin.com backslash podcast um, where the episodes are listed. But um, it's, or a link to a picture on Instagram. It was interesting. Greece was not my first choice, but I uh, it was a marital compromise, to be frank. I knew I was planning to leave my marriage, and it wasn't worth the fight to go to a place that I wanted to go. So we went to Greece, and it was interesting. Not my favorite country, but it was certainly um, an interesting um, and beautiful place. Surprisingly mountainous. Um, the water is surprisingly quiet. Anyway, back to epigraphs. So for Casey Court, and certainly I don't think any other book I've ever written, um, romance or women's fiction, have included an epigraph. But for some reason in the Casey Court series, epigraphs were super important to me. And they are in every book except for The Common Pleas Lawyer which I realized last night when I was making this list. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why. I'll have to think about that. But all the other books have epigraphs, um, some more than one. But when I was reading a little bit about epigraphs last night, I realized that um, I think J.K. Rowling 
sort of framed it best where she talked about for her it was a signal to theme or even foreshadowing and to me that's what the epigraph is in uh, the Casey Court series so as we've discussed um, I'm in the middle of the rebranding renaming uh, retitling excuse me of the books so the book currently now that's qualified immunity which is called Judge has an epigraph it's actually a quote from a Plain Dealer article on the Cleveland Plain Dealer um, from October 7, 2005. It says, quote, A wave of notorious child deaths in the 1990s pushed frightened social workers to remove youngsters from their homes first and ask questions later. And most of those youngsters were black. I had moved out of Cleveland by 2005. I moved here well 2001 so I guess that was well before I left but I remember being interviewed for an article on the plane dealer and I don't know if it was this one or another one I'd actually have to look in my collection somewhere but I remember being interviewed by a reporter who was asking about what it was in cases that I'd had that had prompted removals of children from the home and I told her in so many of the cases, to me, the removal was minor. Um, now, I did sit in one of the first cases I sat in in a court, which was not a case of mine, was a child who had been literally put in an oven by their parents. Now, that child needed to be removed. There is no doubt. I don't care about the race of the child. I don't care about anything. That is a dangerous and horrific situation. But... And most of the cases I handled, I would not say were that level of abuse or the reason for the removal was not actually the abuse. I think a lot of these social workers I talked to felt that abuse was sort of a poor person problem. But ironically, I think the children were often removed for what I would call um, poor people problems. And in Cleveland, which is uh, on Lake Erie and cold as I don't know which is to, to be frank in the winter um, often in the cases I had the clients could not pay for food or they could not pay for heat um, and not being able to pay for heat was a problem because you obviously could die um, of hypothermia in the winter in Cleveland so when parents couldn't pay for heat often the children were removed and put in foster care and what I always wanted to know is is there no way to just pay for heat and I mean there are funds for that um, but often I don't know if my clients or some of the clients when I represented the children were sophisticated enough to apply for those kinds of grants or loans or programs where you could get gas or oil or whatever at a reduced rate or for free Um, but they would often really remove children for that. The other thing that I often thought was unfair was that children who, okay, so children can be born, well, many ways. Uh, my child was born at home, the one I have. So I certainly opted out of any uh, medical system. But there are, and who knows, this may have prompted it. Um, so in Cleveland, at least, a lot of the births were in a public hospital, and when the births were in a public hospital, the mothers were drug tested, and if they tested positive for crack cocaine, um, heroin, 
alcohol certainly would be out of the system. So I'm not sure about that. And to be honest, I'm not sure about pot, but I feel like I had a case where the child was removed when the mom had tested positive for marijuana. Um, if so, if the, the parents were drug tested, they would remove the children at birth. Um, I had a few of those cases, which I think is reflected in the beginning of Judged when Casey goes to visit a child and the child is an infant. And it is so hard as a guardian ad litem to assess an infant. Um, they certainly can't tell you about abuse. They can't tell you about their home when you're left with the stories of everybody else, but not the story of the child that you are charged to protect. But in Cleveland at that time, in private hospitals or hospitals that were not paid for by the public, the mothers were not drug tested. And the statistics show that drug use is the, the, more or less the same not the kind of drugs, but the use of drugs across race and across socioeconomic strata. But moms who had money um, were not drug tested, even though they may have been addicted or high or as affected by drugs as poor women. And so their children were not removed um, for that reason. And it was something that struck me as fundamentally unfair. I mean, you go into a system to have a baby and because you can't afford a private hospital or private insurance, the chances that you're going to have government intervention in your family skyrockets. So that's certainly the uh, a lot of the background behind that um, epigraph and... Um, I don't know if that system has changed. I used to sort of keep up on what happened in Cleveland, but it was a small part of my life. I mean, I'm from um, the East Coast, and I lived there the majority of the time, and I was in Cleveland for five years, and then I was out here on the West Coast. So I don't know if that's changed. I would certainly like to hope so, but I wouldn't hold my breath. The uh, second book in the Casey Court series, which is now titled Under Color of Law, and it's going to be retitled Ransom, that quote is from a, looks like a legal opinion. Um, It is, quote, the fact that obscene conduct by males in the workplace and sexual harassment in our society generally has become the object of special opprobrium and public scorn does not turn the defendant's outrageous conduct into a federal crime, close quote. And the judge who wrote that opinion was Judge Gilbert Merritt, um, August 14, 1997. My recollection, I should have looked all of this up before I started recording, was that Judge Gilbert Merritt was a Sixth Circuit judge. Um, uh, I feel like I should explain this, but the federal court has three levels similar to most state courts, but there's a trial court Um, which is called the District Court. In Cleveland, it was the Northern District of Ohio, which was seated in Cleveland, although there was one court, I think, in Akron. There, the appellate court is called the Sixth um, Circuit, and the Sixth Circuit covered four states, Michigan, Tennessee, Ohio, and Kentucky. I think that's right. Wow, there were a quiz. I don't know if I passed or failed that. But... They, those judges on the Sixth Circuit heard all of the cases from the district courts in those four states, all of the appeals. And Judge Gilbert Merritt, I believe, wrote this about a judge who 
had abused um, litigants, and I also think a couple of secretaries. But as he was right, it was not a federal crime, even though the, actually the perpetrator was a state court judge, I believe in Tennessee. And um, it's not a federal crime. And as in um, this book, the courts have had a very difficult time, I don't know, prosecuting these judges, because if the, whew, how to say this, if the act that they're engaged in is more or less consensual, despite the huge power differential and the implication that the woman um, who is the victim in these cases um, is subject to that court's jurisdiction, divorce, domestic violence, child custody, what have you, um, Often, there's technically no crime. Um, and that certainly plays out in an interesting manner in uh, the second book in the Casey Court series, because if there's no crime for consensual sex or sexual harassment or the abuse of uh, the judge's power, then what can women do? Where do they go? Who do they complain to? How do they fix a system like that? It's um, It remains a conundrum, unless some huge laws have changed that I don't know about. And that is always entirely possible, as I don't practice law anymore. Um, in the third book, um, which is currently called In Plain Sight, um, which will be renamed Caged, um, which is about sex trafficking, um, not a happy topic. The quote is from Hegel, uh, the German philosopher, um, whose name is George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Long name. It is, quote, genuine tragedies in the world are not conflicts between right and wrong. They're conflicts between two rights. In, um, in plain sight, or what's going to be called caged, it is a gray area, and I guess I'm seeing from the trend here, is that I like to write about legal gray areas, um, sort of similar to the domestic violence I was talking to you about earlier. There are things that are just fundamentally wrong, fundamentally right, or for which there is no answer. And for those three things, often the law um, does not cover. There are so many things the law spends so much time covering, one of which is certainly tax laws. I swear to God, there are more tax laws and regulations than there are about human behavior. Um, and when you spend a lot of time legislating money and not legislating ways to have people be good to each other, that's certainly um, an interesting commentary on society. But... I think in the third full-length book in the Casey Court series, one of the things that is a dilemma is sometimes there are two things that are right. Um, and in this case, it's Casey's not right, but her, <laughs> this is certainly legislated by law. She is required to uh, maintain attorney-client privilege. And one of the things that attorneys cannot do is we cannot divulge past crimes. So if somebody walks into your office and they're like, I'm a serial killer, I have killed 50 people, they're all buried, I will give you the coordinates, you are not allowed to share that with anyone. 
and you may have to walk the gauntlet through 50 grieving families who just want to know whether loved ones are buried or whether indeed their loved ones uh, were murdered by the serial killer and you can say nothing. And I think those are the two rights we're talking about here. It's the right of, the right for, I guess, justice and um, attorney-client privilege. And so in this book, Casey knows something that she can't divulge and because of it, crimes are ongoing and there's nothing to do about it. Um, it's, it's a dilemma, but without attorney-client privilege, obviously the criminal justice system would grind to a halt because um, people who have the potential to be criminal defendants or who are criminal defendants are, as everyone else is, entitled to their secrets. And without those secrets, one, as a criminal defense lawyer that I used to be, cannot plan an effective defense. And also you need to know their secrets so you can have an understanding of what extent they were involved in any crime. Um, it's interesting. People are involved in crimes to a minor degree, to a major degree. And in order to defend them in court um, and to know what the prosecutor is likely to bring up, you certainly need all of that information, and that information is never to be divulged. To be honest, I don't think I think about any of that very often. It's sort of like clients came in, they told me their secrets, they told me their crimes, they told me their misdemeanors, and I used it to defend them in that case. And then I put it in a vault um, that is locked so tight. Talk about compartmentalization. I don't think about it. I don't know if I could sleep if I thought about it. Um, the next book, uh, length book that has an epigraph in the Crazy Court series is currently called Conflict of Interest, um, but it's going to be named Unarmed. And the quote is from Anonymous. It's Anonymous Attribution. I wonder where I got it. I have to think about that. It is, quote, law is a revenue stream. Dead boys and girls are the cost of doing business, close quote. This is a book with two epigraphs. I'll read the second one now. It is actually from the book. Um, it is, quote, we have families too. Reverend Emery Wilkinson, who is a uh, black preacher who is outspoken, um, in the Casey Court series, he pops up from every now and then. Uh, think of, well, I'm not going to suggest how you think of him. He is an outspoken black preacher who pops up from time to time. I think the first quote, laws of revenue stream, dead boys and girls, the cost of doing business is maybe one of the most cynical, but certainly, uh, something I encountered that I felt that the cogs of justice so let me say this the justice system is a business and it employs a lot of people there are judges there are courts there are all the people employed by the courts there are prosecutors who are employed by the county some by the state depending on where they are some federal um, as well um, and then there are defense attorneys some paid for by the state depending on the state, some paid for by counties. That's a little bit of a patchwork system, um, which I will skip the unfairness of that. But we're talking like hundreds of thousands of people who are employed um, in a justice system. 
and uh, as one who worked there, it felt like people died, especially in criminal murder cases, obviously, and they were just sort of the cost of doing business. It's like we have a murder and now we have 50 people employed from the court reporter to the bailiff to the judge. And I'm not saying that you don't need a justice system. I was just railing against it uh, not a few minutes earlier. It just felt like there was little regard for the victims who put the system into motion. Um, the We Have Families too quote, it harkens back to something that happened a long time ago. So I was in law school um, in the 90s, and I had a friend whose name I won't mention because she certainly didn't volunteer for this. Um, this is, oh God, I'm, I'm showing my age. At the time when I was in law school, uh, laptops were not ubiquitous. I've seen pictures of classrooms in college and graduate school um, in the last few years, and everybody has an open laptop. So I'm from a notebook and pen era. And um, actually, you had to get special permission to use a laptop in the classroom. And there was one person in my law school class who had permission because he had a severe dyslexia and typing was the only way he could keep his words straight, but he couldn't do it by writing. Different thought. So um, I haven't thought about him in a long time. I'll have to look him up after I finish recording. But people did use laptops um, for studying, outlining, and uh, I guess other things in the library. I was not a person who ever studied in the library. And actually, I don't, I don't think I, I had a desktop. I don't think I had a laptop until much later uh, in life. Anyway, there was a, a friend of mine who was one of the few black students in my law school class, which had about, I don't know, 170, maybe 172 people. And um, I remember her laptop was stolen um, and the perpetrator turned out to be um, a white employee of the school. And I don't even know if she ever got the laptop back, but when the school came to her, maybe they had cameras. I don't even know how they figured out who stole it she was going to prosecute because she was hopping mad. She was in the middle of studying for finals um, and her laptop was stolen, which means all of her materials went with it. Um, Often people transcribe all of their notes into outlines and then delete the handwritten notes. And so all of her study material had been lost with the stolen laptop. And the school officials came to her And they said to her, we would really appreciate that you not prosecute this thief because he has a family. And I remember looking at her and thinking, well, why is his family more important than hers? We have families too. Um, But they treated her as if she were the thief because she wanted to prosecute and seek justice and recompense for having this laptop stolen and at a critical time. Um... I don't know what happened. I have to look that up. I do have notes about everything in life, so uh, I can't tell you what happened, but I just thought it was the most unfair thing. Um, The next epigraph is from a book that's currently called The Right to Life. Um, That's going to be renamed Kidnapped. It's about international child adoption. And the quote is, it is, quote, adoption is in its perfect form, supposed to be about finding homes for children that need them, not about finding children for parents that want them. 
and it's contributed to Claudia Corrigan Darcy. I believe she is the author of a book. Oh, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll have to really go look it up. She's the author of a book or maybe not a book. Maybe it was an article. Wow. I really am going to have to look it up about child adoption, sometimes being child abduction. And this book was actually inspired by an article in the LA Times years ago. I also, I have the I'm so old. I have a clipping that I cut out of the newspaper, but um, in a file where I keep uh, book ideas. Um, But if the article is still live and all of the articles uh, from the 90s are not necessarily archived, even the early 2000s. But if it indeed is there, I will certainly link to it in the show notes. But the article that sort of compelled this book was about these Chinese mothers. So the reporter had flown to China and it interviewed all these um, Chinese mothers whose children had been, according to them, um, abducted to fill the need at that time for um, parents in America and Europe who had an appetite for adopting Chinese children at the time. And um, it's interesting reading about it because in my life, the the country has changed. I mean, I remember being like Romania, and it's been, or Russia, it's been a bunch of different countries where children are um, in orphanages, and uh, that is certainly not a place to raise babies, and uncared for, or not cared for well, and an international outcry, and then a surge of adoption of those children. And the article suggests, or several articles I think I've read, suggested that though when there is that outcry, the number of children that need to be adopted does not satisfy the demand suddenly for those children. And um, people who are unscrupulous make ways for babies to be available for adoption uh, to rich Western foreigners. Oh, there is actually a second. I see this now. There is a second epigraph from that book. It's from the Bible, James 1, 27, and it is, quote, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Uh, that obviously refers to what um, I had read and researched about where the need to save orphans turns into a corrupt black market baby brokering business. Um, I do like a biblical quote and the quote from the next book, which is currently titled Double Jeopardy, which is going to be retitled Contained. Um, And the quote is from James uh, book two, verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And this refers to my favorite uh, political dynastic family, the Brodies. Um, the Brodies, interestingly, um, are mostly in law enforcement. Um, wow, I used to know this off the top of my head, but uh, Tom Brody um, was is a prosecutor. His uncle, Eamon, was a judge, the judge from the uh, second book, Ransomed. His uncle, another uncle, I believe, is the attorney general. 
and he had previously been the prosecuting attorney the head prosecutor for the county um but it is widely known um, by everyone in my fictitious Cleveland that the Brody family engages in corruption. And I have had so many issues and thoughts, which are all um, clear through the book, that Tom Brody engages in illegal behavior, even though he's a prosecutor. And obviously, being a prosecutor helps him cover up his illegal behavior. Um, and yet he's prosecuting people for the same behavior that he engages in. It, there's so many layers there to the moral and ethical quandaries and problems I have with that. So I'll say this. During the time that I lived in Cleveland, there was corruption. I don't know. I think every city and every state and every government has corruption at one level or another. But what was interesting, and this is why I used to sort of follow the news after I left, is that a number of the people that I thought were corrupt went to jail. They literally went to jail um, after I left. And I was thinking, maybe, I mean, I have my thoughts on jail. That is adequate and suitable punishment for uh, the perpetration of crime. But there's so many victims along the way um, who don't get justice. I mean, personal justice, not just as holy because the person goes to jail who committed the crime but along the way there are people who didn't get whatever they deserved or needed from government and there's no recompense for that anyway the next uh one so here we go so these are epigraphs that i'm sharing now for books that are not yet published so as we all know i finished poisoned you know it's still at the editor i have to check on that um, <laughs> editing takes often uh, a long time, but um, my editor has been uh, less busy than normal. The number of books that have been turned in by authors um, has dipped to a new low because uh, coronavirus will sap your creativity like you have nobody's business, especially um, as I do a child at home who's doing Zoom school. And uh, my son is super social and an extrovert. So even though he has a room with a door that can close and a desk and, uh, you know, all sorts of high speed Internet, he likes to sit right next to me while doing school on the laptop. And then I sit on the desktop. But um, even with noise canceling headphones, it's uh, a bit difficult to continue writing. And my writing, um, as others did, stalled, not to mention the mental health effects of um, long term isolation. Anyway, the book is poisoned, and the quote is, to believe in the greater good is to operate necessarily in a certain ethical suspension. And that's attributed to Joan Didion, who is is a prolific author, whom I loved um, as a child, actually. Um, I think that I spent a lot of time thinking about this because... There's a lot of talk about our greater good. We're going to do this for the greater good of people, the greater good of society, the greater good of Los Angeles, the greater good of Cleveland, the greater good of America, the greater good of the world. And um, and this, I hear it now, may have been affected by sort of the greater good of um, what we're doing um, in the whole COVID. But there is some suspension of ethics, and I think leaves us all in a quandary because the greater good is not good for everyone. Um yeah, the greater good is not good for everyone. I'll leave that there. Um, and 
so before I start a book, I usually come up with the epigraph at the beginning. Um, it's sort of a way to have a flashpoint or a checkpoint or a touch point for um, the theme in a book. Um, so the book I'm working on now is Abused. I just finished the first three chapters and wrote half of chapter four yesterday, um, which is about, let me tell you, <laughs> one-tenth of the book. There's a one-tenth, one-twelfth. There's a lot to go. A lot. Um, but at least now I have, let's say, the foundation of a book. Um, so there are two quotes um, in this. And I will say this. So Abused is about domestic violence, and I guess we're back full circle. Um, I talked a little bit uh, a few podcasts back about the autobiographical autobiographical nature of the books I've written. And while I will say that uh, Qualified Immunity, which is going to be renamed Judged, is um, autobiographical in a sense, uh, most of the books aren't. There are tiny pieces of me because I have personal experiences, um, especially as an attorney, that um, inform um, my books. But uh, Casey Court has certainly taken a whole frolic and detour from uh, my personal experience. But um, with Abused, maybe being book 10, I sort of have closed a loop, maybe? I'll have to think about that. Um, where... It's not autobiographical for sure, but um, as the survivor of abuse and domestic violence, I certainly can speak to the issues that the characters are going through in the book and have experienced some of them, but not all of them. And um, it's an interesting book to write. It's actually difficult. It makes me sad, um, but it's healing at the same time. Anyway, I thought a lot about the epigraph um, before I started this book, and so there are two, as I said. The first is, quote, to tell a story is inescapably to take a moral stance, um, and that's attributed to Jerome Bruner, and I will say I have taken a stance. I am standing against <laughs> domestic violence and uh, abuse, and, um, you know, courts don't take as big of a moral stance on it as I would like. And, uh, but I am, and I guess, I guess I am, I guess I'm coming out of the closet, making a statement and taking a stance. Um, and the second quote is one actually I think of all the time and it is there, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, I think um, one of the things I've learned about myself in the last few years is that I'm a highly empathetic person. And actually, I get sad thinking about this, excuse my voice, is that um, so to live in Los Angeles now, it is hard um, to be frank. And I've lived, well, I've only lived in three places in 20 years, but um when I leave my house and my son and I go for a walk um, every day, I literally have to step over homeless people to take a walk in my neighborhood. Um, and I dr when I drive, I don't drive as much, but when I drive, and I post this on Instagram, I'll put a link in the show notes, um, there are people, there are tents on the street, there are permanent porta potties on the street, and... Um, 
the homeless are living on the street and begging everywhere and to be it looks like a third world country because i'm going to be frank we're stepping over a homeless person in front of a house that's for sale for like two million dollars um like down the street and it's just it's a cognitive dissonance i'm gonna be honest i have nowhere to put it but every time i do this i think there but for the grace of god go i because but for different circumstances um, that could be me. I think one of the things that I've learned about talking to other victims of, uh, who grew up in violent homes, um, and abusive homes, which I don't talk about much, but it's certainly, um, how I grew up. It was pretty, pretty awful. And I escaped or left or grew up and moved out, I guess. And to my credit, I, uh, did not suffer, I guess, an addiction or did not have such, uh, did not suffer from mental illness or it didn't cause a psychotic break or something. But often when I pass people on the street, I think they could have grown up exactly as I did. And it just didn't turn out well for them. And every time I pass them, I say a silent prayer, and I think, there but for the grace of God go I. Sorry about this. It's just, um, it is so profound, especially when you become a parent and you have a baby, and you realize that all of the people that you see, all the mentally ill people, the people who are un unhoused, that at some time they were someone's child and there was no way to see how it would turn out but so many horrible things happen to people in their lives and um, it often doesn't go well so um, all of this emotion I guess hopefully um it's represented in the book, but I want people to know that it can turn out any way for any person. Um, some people channel that sort of um, upbringing or they channel abuse or whatever into working or making themselves successful or making sure that they never ever have to experience being demeaned or abused or hurt again but some people don't have that resilience and humans are fragile <laughs> and they can break and unfortunately at least in this society as I step over people just to take a walk um, in my neighborhood or ride past them at the beach in the morning where there's permanent homeless encampments in um, Santa Monica and uh, Venice, that um, it can turn out in any number of any ways. And we need to be kind and compassionate and have empathy and sympathy for all humans.
because we are where we are, you know, maybe driving in your car, listening to this podcast, sitting at home with a roof over your head and heat and food and light and water and shelter. But it could turn out differently, even with um, the same beginning circumstances. So that's it for today, the Epigraph Show. I'm going to go actually uh, maybe eat some breakfast. It's early and I did this uh, before I had my caffeine. So um, this is the Amy Austin that you get. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Time to Thrill, and I'll be back soon, as always, talking about um, Casey Court. Thank you for listening. Again, this is A Time to Thrill with Amy Austin, who also writes as Sylvie Fox. You can follow me on Facebook at Casey Court Series or Amy Austin. You can go to amyaustin.com for more information, A-I-M-E-A-U-S-T-I-N.com. Additionally, you can follow me on Instagram at Sylvie Fox. Thanks for listening.